0: week we began our study of book 1 of the psalms. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that are at the same time a call for worship and the worship called for. We explained last week that if the Psalter is sort of like a national gallery of art, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are positioned in the foyer. Before you enter the galley, they're positioned in the foyer, inviting all who enter to experience the blessings contained in this book. Psalm 1 begins with verse 1 by promising, quote, Blessed is the man who delights in God's word. Then Psalm 2 ends by promising, Blessed are all who take refuge in God's King. That's the message of the book of Psalm in brief. The blessing that every single one of our souls longs for deeply. The, the kind of blessing that money cannot buy and that sickness cannot take away. A life marked by love and contentment, identity and purpose, righteousness and wisdom. The kind of life that every one of us was made for is only possible By Psalm 1, delighting in God's Word, and Psalm 2, taking refuge in God's King. So, my prayer this morning as we come to study Psalm 2 is that you will take refuge in God's King and be blessed. Please take your copy of God's Word, Tom, turn to Psalm 2. And let's read this, you, quietly as I read aloud until we get to verse 10 through 12. And I'm going to ask all of us to read 10 through 12 aloud together. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Read verse 10 through 12 with me. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Amen. So, the the most basic premise behind Psalm 2 is that God is the one true and living creator of heaven and earth. This is His world, He made it. He is the sovereign Lord and King over heaven and earth, over everything that exists. Our God is not like human rulers. God is not corrupt or given to self-serving. Our God is a perfectly good and loving ruler. He provides for his world generously and rules it. With justice. He is, as the Bible says, holy, transcendently holy, completely other holy. God, my friends, is breathtakingly awesome and worthy of our worship. Genesis 1 1 begins the Bible by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 66 Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Psalm 47 2 The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. And Revelation ends the Bible by saying in chapter 4, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Do you believe this? John Piper says, here's the end of the matter. God is the only one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not an act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. Get this. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but that we won't be happy until we give it. Do you believe that? Blessed is the one who takes refuge in God's King. There is no blessings outside of God and his king. Psalm 2 is about man's response to God's sovereign kingship and God's response to man. There are four distinct stanzas in Psalm 2. And we learn four simple lessons from this psalm. Lesson number one. Even though God is the one true and living creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign king over everything that that he has made, man rebels against the Lord. Lesson number one, man rebels against the Lord. Read verse one through three. The psalmist begins with a question that demonstrates the profound absurdity of man's rebellion against God. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Man rebels against the, the Lord, friends. The rebellion of man is universal. Look here. In verse one, it's the nations, plural, and the peoples, plural, led by verse two, their kings and their rulers. Friends, it's every one of us. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to be the king of our own kingdoms. And so we say, along with the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers, verse 2 let us burst God's bonds apart and let us cast away his cords from us. Bonds and cords. That's what we think of God's kingship over us. Nothing but chains and fetters, the kind of yoke that you put on an oxen and that just is a burdensome. And here, man rebels against the Lord in such such a way that they desire to throw it off. William Plummer says, Men find out, The restraints of God's law thwarts their selfish schemes and sinful purposes, and so they oppose the Bible because the Bible opposes them, and they reject God's authority because it's contrary to ours. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away God's cords from off us, man says universally. The rebellion of man is also intense. Notice, this is no small thing. Look at the intensity and purpose behind these verbs. The nations do what? They rage. (laughs) They rage against the Lord. Our desire for independence is personal and it's passionate. Haven't you felt it in your lifetime? What do the peoples do? Verse 1, they plot. They conspire together to determine how to throw off God's rule. How about the kings? What do they do? They set themselves against the Lord. They, They are fixed in their own kingship and in their rebellion against God. And then the rulers, they take counsel. They conspire together against the Lord. That's because in the ancient Near East, the kings considered themselves to be divine monarchs, says Van Gemeren. And here they're portrayed as bringing together all of their divine powers and forces against the Lord God and his anointed. And so the psalmist asks the question that demonstrates the profound absurdity of man's rebellion against the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in what? Vain. Man's rebellion might be universal. It might be intense. But friends, it is senseless. (laughs) It is absolutely vain. The psalmist is astonished here. Why do the people even try? And yet, the Bible records the history of mankind rebelling against God. From the very beginning. It didn't take us three chapters before we were throwing off God's bonds. Chapter one, God creates it. Chapter two, God creates us. Calls it very good. And then chapter three, we say, thank you very much. We'll take it from here. (laughs) And from there, you have the Tower of Babel. Men building a city, uh, a tower to heaven. And and from there, you have the days of Noah that were so evil. God says, I'm just going to wipe this thing out. Start over with a, a little handful of people on a boat. Keep going. You have the Pharaoh in Egypt that has to be convinced he's not God. Then you have even God's people in the wilderness. What are they doing? They're not just wandering around. They're in rebellion against God. Man rebels against God. Every king of Israel has. And then when God sends his king, Jesus, what do the rulers, the religious elite of, of Israel do? They reject him and kill him. William Plummer again says this psalm shows us the nature of our sin. Every one of us, the nature of sin is rebelling against the only perfect law and perfect lawgiver in the universe. It's rage and fury. If sin had its way, it would annihilate God's judgment. Sin seeks to dethrone God. And this is true of all sin and every time we sin. Lesson number one from Psalm 2. Man rebels against the Lord. Lesson number two. The Lord is gloriously undeterred by man's rebellion. (laughs) Isn't that great? Gloriously undeterred. I didn't say unaffected. That word doesn't fit. He is undeterred. Read verse 4 through 6. After we see the rebellion of man, we see God's response to man's rebellion. Verse 4. Through six, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Undeterred. All this rage is impotent, says Plummer. The war is unequal. It's as if a fly should attack an elephant. The Lord's response seems to say, I'm the king of this kingdom. You are Out of your depth, get back in your place. Notice how the psalmist describes the Lord in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens. Where do you sit? Not in the heavens. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah describes the transcendent godness of God by asking, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Can you do that, O man? Behold your God, Isaiah says. He continues in chapter 40 Whom did God consult? And who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Behold your God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He laughs. Derek Kidner says it this way. It's plain that the only laughing matter is the arrogance of the kings, not their suffering under God's judgment. The Lord laughs at the arrogant rebellion of the kings as if grasshoppers. He holds them in derision. Derision is to mock. God exposes the truly ridiculous nature of the rebellion of the nations against him. He holds them in derision. And then verse five, while Laughing and mocking might be private or internal. Then, verse 5, he speaks. He speaks to them in wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. And what does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy Hill. When God speaks, every mouth will be stopped and every sinner will be speechless. The Lord's declaration is confidence. Confidence in his plan for his kingdom. Confidence in his sovereign governance of the world. He says, I have set my king to rule over my kingdom. And my law governs my people. And that leads us to lesson number three. Lesson number one, man rebels against the Lord. Lesson number two, the Lord is gloriously undeterred by man's rebellion. And lesson number three, the Lord has established his son to rule over his kingdom. The next three verses, verse seven through nine. The Lord has established, he has set, he has placed, ordained his son to reign over his kingdom. Read verse 7 through 9. I think this is interesting. We have had a number of speakers so far. At first, it was the psalmist speaking. Verse 1 through 3. Then verse 4 through 6, it was the Lord. Now, this is the Lord's king. Notice he says, to me, and my, and I. So this is God's king speaking. and, And what he does is he discloses the Lord's decree to him, the Lord's charge to him, his orders. He discloses it. What God the Lord told his king. Verse Seven through nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I want you to notice these three verses, seven, eight, and nine, talk about the king's relationship, the king's inheritance, and the king's charge. Verse seven, the king says, let me tell you what the Lord decreed to me. He said to me, you are My son, today I have begotten you. Now, we understand that the book of Psalms is about the life of Israel, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And at that time, these are the Psalms of David. Now, if you look at Psalm chapter 2, it does not say that it is a Psalm of David. But Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 13 Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, and two different times in Revelation tells us that it is a psalm of David. Psalm chapter 2 is immediately talking about God's king, David, his king over his people Israel in his capital city, Jerusalem, which is on Mount Zion, my holy I agree with Derek Kidner, though. A greater than David was needed to justify the full fury of these threats and the full glory of these promises. This is not limited to King David. It is immediately about and fulfilled in King David, but it is about David's greater son, the great King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he fulfills Psalm 2, he is the Lord's anointed in verse 2. The the word anointed means Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, which is the word Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. Jesus is the son, in verse 7, who reigns as the king, verse 6, over God's kingdom. So we see in verse 7, you are my son. At Jesus' baptism, and then again at his transfiguration. Do you remember what God the Father said about Jesus? Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His relationship, you're my son. Verse 8, his inheritance. Can you imagine the Lord saying this to his king? ask of me. Now this is this is no ordinary earthly father that says just ask, son, I'll give you whatever you want. This is the creator God of heaven and earth who owns it all. Ask of me. Ask anything of me and it's yours. What does he invite his king to ask for? Verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession by inviting the king to ask god gives him a vision of a world wide rule this is no small kingdom in a tiny country called israel god's king rules over a global Yes, even cosmic kingdom. God is the ruler of the world and he authorizes the Davidic king to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And this language is not simply hyperbole, says Van Gemmeren. In it lies the hope of the saints. Do you hear echoes of the Great Commission there? Jesus tells his disciples to preach the gospel where? Jerusalem. Go on out from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. Judea. Samaria. And then where? Uttermost parts of the earth. Christian. William Plummer says this. Your salvation is eternally secure because you are part of the inheritance that King Jesus asked for and received. Asking for the inheritance of the nations no small ask it was no small light promise do you remember that when jesus was baptized he immediately went into the wilderness and was tempted by satan the same satan that brought down the fall of man now is tempting the second adam in the wilderness Do you remember among the several temptations from Satan to Jesus? Do you remember this one? All these, let me back up. Matthew 4, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. And what did Jesus say to the tempter? Begone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And because Jesus... Loved righteousness and hated evil. And because Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Jesus laid down his righteous life as a a sacrifice, an atonement for unrighteous sinners. And we see that because of that, Revelation 7 John, the revelator says, after this, I looked and I beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, tribes, and tongues from all over the world. Christian, your salvation is eternally secure because you are part of the inheritance that King Jesus asked for and received. His relationship is as a son. His inheritance is the nation's. In verse 9, his charge. What was the Lord's charge to his king? We don't have a full disclosure of all of the charges to the king. Psalm 2 tells us what his charge was in light of the nations who are raging against the Lord and his anointed. And what is his charge? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. His reign over God's kingdom comes with the authority to judge the nations and it guarantees victory over every enemy. Van Gemeren again says it better than I can, the rule of God's Messiah King brings stability. Even if he has to use the force of judgment, the Lord's King has power to smash opposition to his rule. The King may need to shatter any enemy who rebels, even though he hopes that he will not have to resort to such an action. Make no mistake, friend. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He is a warrior king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis portrayed Jesus the king in his Chronicles of Narnia? As the lion Aslan, and when the children were about to meet Aslan for the first time, the the lion king, they asked, "Is, is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And their companion responded, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Psalm 2 portrays Jesus as the warrior king who takes his scepter that is a rod of iron and brings judgment to all who will rebel against him. Promised. His relationship, his inheritance, and his charge, all to King David immediately, all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, it goes beyond just the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel for us. Do you recognize that because of the the complete sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that he earned is now ours? All of his inheritance is is now ours. We are sons of God because He is the Son. We are the inheritance part of god's kingdom because he's the one who asked, and his victory over our enemies is our blessing. Lesson number one: man rebels against the Lord. is it beginning? To seem more absurd to you that we would do this? Man rebels against the Lord. Lesson two, the Lord is gloriously undeterred by man's rebellion. Lesson number three, the Lord has established his son to reign over his kingdom. And finally, lesson number four, the Lord promises to bless all will take refuge in his king Psalm 2 the Lord promises to bless all who will take refuge not rebellion but refuge in God's king You see verse 10 through 12, the final stanza. Psalm 2 ends with a warning in verse 10, an exhortation in verse 11, and a promise in verse 12. Even before we read it, I think it's good for us to ask, who's speaking here? Who do you think is speaking in verse 10 through 12? I think it would be natural for us to say that it's the psalmist who asks the question in verse 1. He's now circling back, and the psalmist is saying to the raging nations, here's the warning, here's the exhortation, here's the promise. Clearly, whoever's speaking is calling for the kings and the rulers of the earth to assess their situation, to be wise, to be willing to submit to the authority of God's king so that they'll be blessed rather than be destroyed by his judgment. Friends, I think it's also right to understand that this is the Lord and or his king speaking in verse 10 through 12. Because this psalmist, if it is him, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord patiently, graciously calling for rebels to repent. And if you have seen man's absurd rebellion in your own heart, hear the call, the invitation to repent, take refuge in God's king, and be blessed. This is grace, my friends. Read aloud again with me, verse 10 through 12. Everyone. Will never ever come by reigning as the king of your own kingdom, but only by taking refuge in God's king. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 present a similar contrast, and they hold out a similar promise. Psalm 1, there's two ways to live. We learned this last week. There's man's way that leads to nothing but perishing and destruction. And then there's God's way that leads to flourishing. The only way to flourish is by delighting in God's word. Now Psalm 2 stands in the foyer and says there's only two ways to live. You can live as your own king. You can rebel against the Lord. And it will lead nowhere but judgment. Or you can take refuge in God's king and be blessed. Which one are you? Really? Have you taken refuge in God's king? What does that mean? There's four responses here. The way that we're to respond to God's king is is listed in four different ways. First of all, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. The word serve is Is the word worship. So the very first thing that we do. Is we recognize who God's king is. And we worship him. We serve and obey him. Rather than rebel against him. Rather than reject him. And we worship the Lord how? With fear. When the Bible talks about fear. Yes it has that sense of. Of something that is terrorizing, but, but here you can see this is a blessing. This is an invitation into blessing. This is a holy sense of reverence about the godness of God and his anointed. Fear as in reverence that leads to worship. When you really understand who King Jesus is, this is what you will do. Isn't this what the, the three wise men did in the story in Matthew chapter 2, I believe it is? The kings of the earth came to worship God's king while the king in town was trying to find every baby boy that might be about his age so that he could kill it. And they brought gifts fit for a king. Why? Because they knew Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is talking about Jesus. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice for, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is the Lord's king. And our response is worship with fear. That's what Noah read for us in Revelation chapter 19. At the very end of the story, God's king comes back. And did you hear the imagery there? God's king comes riding on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. The armies of heaven. Are all arrayed in fine linen. Because his robe is dipped in blood. They're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. With which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a what? Rod of iron. That's. Psalm 2, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you worship King Jesus? Response number two. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and what? Rejoice with trembling. What does it mean to rejoice in something? We rejoice in something that we're really thankful for and glad about. We rejoice because we know what King Jesus has done for us. We rejoice because we know that King Jesus is the one who has conquered sin and death for us. He is the great shepherd boy who slayed the giant for us. And the true response to God's king is both fear and joy, reverence and rejoicing. Do you see that there in verse 11? Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. I thought that was really interesting. Notice there's there's a symbiotic relationship here between fear and joy. They might sound like they're opposites, but they're not. They're fear and joy. The fear has joy in it, and the joy trembles with fear. William Plummer explained it this way. If you take fear out of joy, then the joy is light and lacking in substance. (sighs) Nothing to it. If you take joy out of fear, then the fear becomes oppressive, terror. The true response to God's king is both fear and joy, reverence and rejoicing. We reverence him because of who he is and we rejoice over him because what he has done for us. Response number three, verse 12. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? What should they do? Be wise, be warned. Instead of raging and plotting and rebelling, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled quickly to kiss the sun is to bow the knee and pay homage to the king to willingly willingly lay down your arms give up your feudal rebellion and submit to god's king to profess loyalty and obedience that's the right that's the right response kiss the sun and finally verse 12 at the end blessed are all who take refuge in him the contrast to rebellion We worship King Jesus. We rejoice in King Jesus. We submit to King Jesus. And blessed are all who take refuge in King Jesus. To take refuge is to trust. It's to to find your place with and in to escape fear. You come take refuge in safety. Here we, in Psalm 2, we see the terror of the judgment coming on those who rebel. And so the final blessing is for those who don't run from but run to. Derek Kidner says it so pointedly. There is no refuge from him, only in him. And friends, submitting to a perfectly good king is not losing your freedom. It's flourishing. Book of Psalms opens with this invitation, and it's an invitation to every single one of us. My question is, what have you done with this invitation these past two weeks? It will take God's grace, the miracle of regeneration, to take you from a rebel to one who worships and kisses and takes refuge in the king. If you see the glory of King Jesus this morning, why don't you pray and ask God to do that miracle in your heart? Christian? Do you trust, really trust the king? Or even as one who is a citizen of the kingdom, do you live as if you are the king of your own relationships and your own money? Do you continue to live as if you are the king of your time and your retirement and you are the king of your family? Take refuge in the king. There is nothing to fear. There's only flourishing when we Delight in God's word and trust God's king. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God of heaven and earth, we thank you that you have had grace on rebellious sinners like us. That you sent your son, your king, to rescue us from ourselves, to defeat our enemies. And that you open our eyes to the glory of your king and the absurdity of living as our own king. I pray that you would do that for some today. I pray that you would arrest them, change them so that they delight in your word and take refuge in your king. For those of us who have already been made citizens of the kingdom, we cannot do anything except for thank you for asking for us. Thank you for sacrificing for us, King Jesus. Thank you for securing us. Thank you that all of the blessings that you earned are ours by faith. I pray that you would cause us to flourish in them. For your glory and our good, it is in your name we pray. Amen.